Good morning. Good morning, guys. How's everybody? You know, this is that weekend that we all look forward to every year where we mess with the clocks and you get to sleep in a little bit later. And you would think that I would be more awake and aware right now than I would normally be this time of day. And I'm like drinking coffee, pounding it down, trying to stay awake. Is there anybody else here kind of drowsy this morning? How many of you look forward to sleeping in and found yourself like me waking up at 5 a.m.? What was the deal with that? I never get up at 5 a.m., and yet this morning that's what happened. So I'm going to be chugging on some coffee while I'm talking to you. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Alan, and I am your substitute preacher today. This happens to me occasionally, and I'll explain how it happens. We have a weekly discipleship group meeting between me and Gary and Tim, and we affectionately call it an elders meeting. And we get to talking about different things that we're learning from the Word of God. And right now we're going through the Sermon on the Mount. And so we were talking a couple of weeks ago, and we were talking about the the fight to stay away from legalism. What we've noticed, you know, we've been Christians for a long time, and what we've noticed is that there seems to be two broad camps about the ways that you approach the Sermon on the Mount. One is to go at it looking for a bunch of rules. And people will find all kinds of new and interesting rules reading through that material. And the other way to go through it is to go through it looking for God. And we were just discussing the difference that it makes to move away from legalism and actually move to a place where you do like Paul commanded the Colossian church to do in chapter 1, verse 10. He said, make it a goal here, to live a life worthy of the Lord that pleases him in every way. Well, I have opinions on this. I began to explain some of my opinions, and the next thing I know, and this is what always happens to me, Tim looks at me and says, you know what? I need a weekend off. Why don't you preach that lesson? So here I am. I am your substitute preacher this morning. And we're in the middle of a series called Living Like a King. And see, we've become absolutely convinced that Jesus is not only a king, he's the king. He's the king of all kings. He has all authority in heaven, all authority on earth. We've become equally as, as convinced that the gospel is about the good news of his kingdom invading this earth. And wherever you come to that position, well, then the next thing that you want to know is, how do I please him? How do I live that life that's worthy of him? How do I live a way that, that pleases him in every way? So what we're going to look at today is how do we make that happen? How do we make Jesus the king of our hearts? Now, nowhere in Scripture do I know of that he's actually called the king of hearts. But I believe as we go through and just look at this topic a little bit and unpack it, you'll find out that's exactly where he wants to reign. Let me check my notes to see where I'm at. Okay. Like I mentioned, we're in this goal here of learning how to live a life that's worthy of him and please him in every way. And we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount in our small groups and in our discipleship groups. We've been doing that for about two months. How many of you guys have enjoyed that study? Is it challenging? Is it eye-opening? See, the whole Bible, I think, really, I think God gave us Genesis through Revelation to teach us how to live that life, how to please him in every way. But in my opinion, I think maybe ground zero for this instruction really comes from Matthew 5 to chapter 7 in the Sermon on the Mount. And there is so much in there, but, you know, I think Jesus kind of boils it down to some irreducible minimums If you look over at Matthew 22, 37 through 40. Before we get there, it just occurred to me that I need to tell you, we don't have any notes this morning. 
Normally we have those, but there was a snafu with updating the computers, so they didn't get them printed off. However, our website, if you go to our website, you'll find under today's sermon, you'll find the notes there, so you can find them and follow them along there if you'd like. Now in this passage, I've got to kind of set it up for you. See, Jesus came along, and he had to deal with the religious establishment. And the religious establishment had a couple of different factions in it. One of them was the Pharisees. If you know much about these guys, they were professional religionists. They made their living out of reading through the Old Testament, finding all the rules, and telling people how to keep those rules. They were so much about the rules that not only did they learn all the rules that were in the Old Testament, like little lawyers, little religious lawyers, they also developed a whole other system of rules to help keep you from breaking those rules. So naturally, whenever Jesus comes along, they consider him a threat. They consider him a challenge to their authority, to their position, and even to their livelihoods. So they were constantly having these running battles with him, and that's what we find happening here in the context in Matthew 22. See, they were coming at him, and they wanted to trip him up. They wanted to put him in a corner. And so what do they do? They ask him, what's the biggest rule? That's what they majored in, was the rules. What's the greatest commandment? And this is how he answered. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. Well, all the laws and the prophets, everything that they had devoted their lives to get boiled down to this, to love. To loving God. And to loving people. Think about that for a second. How big is the Old Testament? That's the law and the prophets. And Jesus sums it up by, well, it's just about love, guys. All the law and the prophets hang on that. Well, we're doing this series talking about living like a king. Loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving others as yourself. That's the way the king lived. That's the way that Jesus lived his life. If we're going to live that life that's worthy of him, that pleases him in every way, we're going to have to learn how to live like him. And what that means is learning how to love like him. And the key is to do it with all our heart, all our soul, and all our mind. See, now we don't really relate to kings too much in America. We kind of flip the script a little bit. Kings usually have all authority and everybody's trying to please him. Or at least they have to keep him happy in some way, right? But in America, we kind of view like the president has to kind of keep us happy. But we still understand that kings have a lot of authority. Even presidents have a lot of authorities. Where do kings, what do kings usually want to rule over? Is it often that they really rule over people's hearts? I don't think that's the, the part of the anatomy that most kings are looking to rule over. I think maybe a little lower and maybe back here somewhere. They want you to keep their rules, right? And here in America, we do the same thing, kind of. How many of you guys pay taxes? How many of you do it because you like to? <laughs> so, you understand. There's something about, most of the time, kings and, and people in authority, they just want to rule over some rules. But that's not what Jesus is getting at at all. You see, the problem, there's a problem with rules-based worship. There's a problem with rules-based worship. The Pharisees, at the time that Jesus came along, were all about the rules. What about in Christianity today? What about in churches that you're familiar with? What about us? Why did you come this morning? Did you, are you going to give any money? Why? Is it because there's rules? 
there's a problem with rule-based worship. In fact, if, if you're planning on giving money this morning to support this ministry, because you feel like there's a rule, would you hang on to your money? Because that's not really the heart of the matter. If you look at Matthew 15, verses 8 through 9, Jesus takes issue with this whole rules-based worship dilemma. In there he says, these people honor me with their lips. Now he's quoting something that Isaiah had said hundreds of years earlier in Isaiah 29. He says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. It's pretty common in churches, isn't it? People that talk a good game, but they're not necessarily really in it from the heart. And he says, they worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. See, when we have a rules-based worship, your heart doesn't have to be engaged, does it? And when your heart isn't engaged, guess what your worship is? It's worthless. There's a problem with that. You know, how many rules are there? Even if we all could agree on what all the rules are in the Bible, that wouldn't necessarily guarantee that our hearts were engaged, would it? And Jesus came to be king over what's on the inside. Now, whenever the, the Bible talks about the heart, you realize that it isn't talking necessarily about your feelings. You know, we, we do Valentine's Day and we have the picture of the heart and sometimes we can think that just, well, whenever God talks about doing things from the heart and in your heart, he's talking about your feelings. But is that really what he's getting at there? I think that the heart is what's at the core. What's at your core? Who are you really at the bottom level? Does that include your feelings? Sure. But I think it's a lot more than your feelings. You know, your feelings are really based on something deeper. Your feelings are based on something that you're thinking. And what you're thinking is based on something even deeper yet, and that's what you believe. Have you ever been in an argument or upset, and then someone comes to the door, or the phone rings, and you get in this conversation, and when you're done with it, you realize you're not mad anymore? What happened? Why aren't you mad anymore? What you were thinking changed, right? Sometimes you can't even remember why you were mad. So when we're talking about heart, and in this lesson, and Jesus being king of the heart, we're not talking about king of your feelings. It would include your feelings, but it includes even the deeper stuff, the stuff that's really at the core. What do you really believe? Because what you really believe is going to change what you think, and what you, change, what you think is going to affect how you feel. So here's the truth. For Jesus to be the king of your heart, he has to be in your heart. What good is a king who doesn't live in the country he's supposed to have jurisdiction over? It's one of the reasons why having rules-based religion doesn't work. If the king isn't in your heart, he's really not governing there. So how do you know what's king of your heart right now? We'd all like to say Jesus is king of my heart, right? But how do you know? Is he really? If, they, if we opened you up and dug to the deepest center part of you, would we find Jesus or would we find something else? How can you tell? Well, what I want to give you is maybe a couple of different metrics that you can use to try and find out for yourself how much Jesus really is at the center of you. Because you know that's where he wants to be. First thing I would have you to do is to ask a question. The first question is, is what do I treasure? What do I treasure? If you look at Matthew 6, 21... Jesus says there that where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. You ever bought a new car? 
and you're, you're, and all of a sudden your heart gets kind of tied up in it, doesn't it? Because you treasure it. And so you buy insurance for it, and you buy little things for it, maybe special hubcaps or um, spinners or whatever, you know, get the crazy sound system. And where do you park it when you go to the mall? You park way away. Why? Because you have this heart connection. It's what you treasure. So here's, here's the metric I would give you. And I was told this a long time ago, and I think it still works very well. If you want to know what you treasure, look at your checkbook and your schedule book. Where do you spend your time? Where do you spend your money? That should tell you something about what's really at the center of you. If you look at your time and you spend all your time making money so that you can go have things or do things, uh, that may not be Jesus at the center of your heart. If you spend all your money on other things besides what would please God, if you don't really consider him the owner of what you earn, you consider yourself, well, I'll give God a little bit, but this is mine, you may find out that God really isn't as much of the sinner as, as he wants to be. Here's another one, and this one takes a little bit longer to explain. But the next question would be, what comes out when my guard is down? You ever have your guard go down and you say something you shouldn't say? We're getting ready to go into the holidays. See, now your guard can go down for any number of reasons. It could be because you're just relaxed. It could also be because you're very uptight or upset. You ever get mad and say something you shouldn't have said? Or it can be because you're excited. You ever get excited and say something you shouldn't have said? We're getting ready to go through the holidays. Have you ever sat at a holiday and something you were thinking but you shouldn't have said comes bubbling out? Man, Uncle John's a jerk. You know, he's like, you heard that, huh? I thought that was my inside voice. Well, that's, there's a problem with that inside voice, and we're going to talk about that in a couple minutes when we get to it. But for right now, Jesus talks about this very dynamic in Matthew chapter 12, verses 34 through 36. See, there he says that it's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. In other words, what comes out when your guard's down is what's actually inside you. When I first started coming around, I had been, a, this is back in 91, I had been a police officer for five years. I found as a police officer that I had to cultivate a different kind of language in order to get people's attention. You're just yelling, hey, stop, because you're going to get in trouble. It didn't really motivate people to stop. So I learned to cuss like a longshoreman. And I was dropping F-bombs and all kinds of stuff trying to sound tough. Whenever I first came around here, I was paranoid to speak. I was, because I was... Anybody here can relate to this? Because I thought what's just going to naturally come out of me is this language that I use other places, and I, I know it doesn't fit here. Well, the reason why it was there is because I had put it in there. And it came flowing out. And here's picking up where Jesus talks here. In verse 35, he says, The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him. And the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that men will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. See this careless words thing? I think that's when our guard is down. I think that's what he's talking about. But did you notice that the good man, he gets things out of his heart because he stored up good things in it. Why did I have a problem with cussing? whenever I really didn't mean to be vulgar. I had stored up curse words in my heart. And so when my guard came down, it's not just words that we put in there. 
look at what Jesus says here in Matthew 15, 19. See, what I'm trying to get you here in this next section is I want you to help, help you to be able to determine what's really in there, what's really in your core. And Jesus talks about this. He says, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. Where do they come from? They start out as thoughts. What kind of thoughts? Do you, do you relate to any of these? See, most of us, I don't know if there's anybody in here that thinks murder, but in a crowd this size, maybe someone does. That's a problem. See, that's evidence. If you're thinking about murdering someone, eh, maybe not Jesus in there. You know, it's one way you can kind of test. That one may not be so common, but what about sexual immorality? What do you do with your thought life? What do you do with your fantasies? What about adultery? What about theft? Do you want things that you can't afford? Things you don't have a right to? What about false testimony? Do you daydream about getting somebody in trouble and you'd be willing to say hurtful things that maybe aren't that true? That'd be slander too. What's really in your heart? See, we would like to think that we would never do these things just because we're running them in our head. But out of the overflow of the heart, these things happen. Okay, if Jesus is only the king of rules in your life, that's the list that you're going to have inside you. And that's the kind of crap that's going to come out of you whenever your guard comes down. But there's another way to measure this. If Jesus really is there at your core, if you've been putting him in there, there's some other things that are likely to come out, and I want to show you about four of them, and we'll try to cover it quickly. The first one is gratitude. If you look at Colossians 3.16, just getting to the end of the sentence there, we're commanded to sing to God with gratitude in your hearts. See, do we owe God gratitude? Yeah. Do you think about it much? Do you put that in your heart? Do you think about what we owe him? See, that list that we were looking at of those evil things that can come out, if that list looked kind of familiar to you, it's because Jesus deals with all of these in the Sermon on the Mount. One of the things, I spent most of the summer last year, uh, this past year, studying out the Sermon on the Mount. One of the things that I came to a conclusion was is that Jesus, throughout the Sermon on the Mount, is really trying to teach us about three aspects of love. Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. How did I come to that? Well, remember, Jesus kind of boils down what it means to fulfill the law by saying loving God and loving other peoples. He says, all the law and the prophets hang on these two things. Well, just one chapter later in chapter 23, he's back into it with the Pharisees again. They're giving him a hard time. And Jesus says, you know, you guys are really great with the rules. You know, they gave a tithe of everything. In fact, they would even get into their spice rack and give out a tithe of their mint and dill and cumin. And Jesus said, that's pretty good. You should always do that. But you leave the weightier things of the law undone. Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And see, I think weightier things of the law and things that everything hang on are ways of saying the same thing. So what I've come to understand is God is love. And three aspects of it are justice, mercy, and faithfulness. It's important to keep this in mind because if I ask you, do you love someone or are you a loving person, how do you define loving? 
Is it the same way I'm defining loving? It doesn't matter if we define it the same way as each other. It's do we define it the way that God does? God defines it as his justice, his mercy, and his faithfulness. And wherever it comes down to, to being grateful, see, justice, I think that gratitude, how did I say it in my notes? Gratitude is loving because it's just. It's about justice because God has a right to your gratitude. See, if I'm a just person, then what I'm really concerned about is that I don't take from you anything that you have a right to. That I don't take anything that I don't have a right to. See, God is exactly that way. God never takes anything that he doesn't have a right to. He is big on protecting people's rights. Am I that way? If I've got gratitude in my heart, it's going to come from him. And I should have gratitude towards him because he has a right to my gratitude. Would you agree with that? So what's in the middle of you? Are you in touch with this gratitude? How do you feel when someone's giving you friction? Is it gratitude for God that you get in touch with? Does that come pouring out? Or is it something else? Okay, let's look at the second one. Forgiveness. Matthew 18.35. Jesus commands us. He'd been teaching a lot on forgiveness here. And he says that we're supposed to forgive Forgive your brother from your heart. Again, if you think this is about your feelings, we're all sunk. Right? Because if forgiving from my heart means that I have to feel really good about forgiving you, I don't think I can do that with everybody. Can you? If you're going to forgive from the heart, I think what Jesus is telling us is you're going to have to have forgiveness in your heart. And frankly, you're going to have to have it in there before you need to give it to somebody. See, this is about having God's mercy in your heart. See, mercy is similar to justice, but it's kind of at the other end. See, justice is about rights, protecting everybody's rights, but mercy is about surrendering some of your rights and giving somebody else some extra ones. Forgiveness is one aspect of that mercy. Generosity is another. I mean, if you think about it, if I earn money but I give it to you that didn't earn it and let you have the right to use it, I've surrendered some of my rights and given you some extra ones, right? Forgiveness is sort of the same way. If you hurt me or harm me, it's kind of a debt there. But if I'm going to be merciful like God is, then I'm, I'm going to surrender the right to have you make that right with me, which gives you some extra rights. These are really important to keep in mind because I also think one of the big things in the Sermon on the Mount is we're, we're, Jesus is painting us this picture of who God is. God is crazy about justice. He doesn't want anybody getting treated in a way that they don't deserve, except maybe himself. He is so merciful. He gave up his right to stay. Jesus gave up his right to, for equality with God. Philippians 2 will tell you all about this. He surrendered that right, came and became one of us. He gets us. No matter what you're struggling with or how bad you feel like you are, Jesus gets you because he's lived this life and he did it because he's not that worried about protecting his rights. He's worried about protecting yours. That's why he left heaven. Are you like that? Or are you all about protecting your rights? If you're all about protecting your rights, you're going to have this very, very difficult to forgive from the heart if, what you're, if you're not merciful. So we have to have God's mercy in our heart. And again, this is about you trying to determine... Who's really your king in your heart? Do you have a hard time forgiving? 
Maybe it's because you haven't put that mercy in there. If you don't have the mercy in there, you may not have the king in there. Third one, faithfulness. Look over at Ephesians 6.6. 6. Paul's talking to slaves there, and he says, Obey them, and he's talking about earthly masters, not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. How many of you guys hold a job and have a boss? How do you work when the boss is there? Got it in your head? How do you work when he's not there? Well, we don't have slavery, uh, not, not like he's talking about, but this dynamic in the workplace can be kind of the same, right? We're talking about faithfulness. See, faithfulness is telling the truth and keeping your word. God never lies. God always tells the truth. That should give us some comfort. And he always does what he says he will do. If we're going to be like him, if he's the king of our hearts, how are we going to be? Do you tell the truth and do you do what you'll say? If you, guarantee, if you said, I will accept this job and I will do what you say for this much money, do you have the integrity, do you have God's faithfulness in your heart that you're going to do what's right even if no one will know the difference? What comes out when your guard is down? What comes out when the boss isn't around? If Jesus is really in there at your core, faithfulness will come out. Integrity will come out. And the fourth one, and these are the first list that we looked at were things that are going to come out whenever Jesus is not king of your heart. And we're looking at things that will come out if Jesus is king of your heart. The fourth one that I would show you is love for others. 1 Peter 1.22 says that we're supposed to love one another deeply from the heart. Again, if this is about my feelings, this is going to get tough. Do you like everyone in the room right now? I know the truth. I'm just like you. I don't like everyone in the room. <laughs> I try. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I don't know if I really want to own that statement. I like most of you. There's one or two, but okay, I'll go a little further. You can pick them out. They have a different color shirt than what I am presently wearing. Yeah. <laughs> they, they have different loyalties. It's a different way of looking at the world. They're hard to love, but the Lord calls us. You're only helping my point, buddy. <laughs> okay, bring it on back. Okay, yeah. This, that's you say things like that, and you, and you don't get to preach as often, and that's not bad. That's not a bad thing. We're supposed to love one another deeply from the heart. So here's the point: this isn't about your feelings. Loving other people deeply from the heart is about treating them with God's justice, treating them with God's mercy, treating them with faithfulness. If I'm going to treat people that way, I have to have that in my heart to begin with. How do you, how do you treat other people? Are you determined not to violate their rights? Not to take from them something you have no right to take? And are you willing to surrender certain rights for their good. Will you always tell them the truth and keep your word? That's what it means to love one another from the heart. And you can't do it unless those things are in your heart to begin with. If Jesus is king of your heart, those things will be there. Okay, I want to switch gears for you just a little bit here. Oops, before I do that, there's one other blank here. Loving others from the heart is about God's justice moving you to protect other people's rights. 
loving other people from the heart is about God's justice and probably mercy and faithfulness too, moving you to protect other people's rights. Why in the world should we do that? Well, let's look at Romans 13.8. Paul said to these guys, he said, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. Did you realize that loving one another like we're talking about here with justice, mercy, and faithfulness is a debt? It's a debt for whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. Doesn't this sound very much like what Jesus boiled it down to in Matthew 22? Love the Lord your God with everything inside you from the core, your heart, soul, and mind, and love other people the way you love yourself. It sums up the law. All the law and the prophets hang on this. And we should know this. In Matthew 7, 12, Jesus says, if you just treat other people the way you want to be treated, it's the golden rule. He said that sums up the law. Anybody here really not want to be treated with justice? Anybody here not want to be treated with mercy or be treated with faithfulness? See, it sums up the law, and it's a debt. Who's the debt to? See, if, if Seth's sitting up here, if, if Seth is hard with me, it's hard for me to realize that I, I owe him a debt. I may never be able to actually get to that place emotionally or even logically, but who do I owe the debt to? See, loving... The debt of love is not a debt to others. It's a debt to God. Why is it a debt to God? Well, look at 1 John 4, 19-21. We love because He first loved us. Other scriptures will tell you it was while we were far away, while we were enemies of the cross, He loved us. When we were His enemies when we weren't concerned at all about living a life worthy of Him or pleasing Him in every way, when we were violating His rights left and right, He loved us. He treated us with justice, mercy, and faithfulness. He goes on, John does, he says, whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. That ought to scare some of us. Because some of us in this room hate other people, maybe even in this room and call ourselves Christians. I'd say that if, when that dynamic exists, Jesus is more the king of rules for you than the king of your heart. And John just calls it like it is. It means you're lying. He goes on, he says, For whoever does not love their brother and sister, whom they have not seen, cannot love God whom they, I'm sorry, who they have seen, cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he's given us this command. You ready? Brace yourselves. Here's the command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. We're not talking about feelings, are we? We're talking about that commitment to be like God is to, to us. He treated us with justice, mercy, and faithfulness. If we allow him to put that in us, then we can treat other people, our brothers and our sisters, regardless of how flawed they are, with that same commitment to be just with them, merciful to them, and faithful. And it's a debt that we owe God because he gave it to us first. Okay, so love is a debt. How do you pay this debt? Well, I don't know about you, but I wouldn't want to overthink this a whole lot. How many of you guys have monthly bills? You have monthly debts that come up? I got a mortgage. That's a big deal. I found that if I'm going to pay those debts, they usually want money, if I'm going to pay those debts, I have to 
make deposits of cash into my bank before the debt comes. Then when the debt comes, I have it there to give. Back to Jesus' words about out of the overflow of the heart. See, I think this whole thing about paying the debt of love works about the same way. If I'm going to pay the debt of love that I owe God by loving people, I'm going to have to put his love in on deposit in my heart first before the issue arises. I'm going to have to put his justice in there. I'm going to have to put his mercy in there. I'm going to have to put his faithfulness in there so that whenever I need it, it's there. And in the notes, if you'd have had them, but on the, on the screen I can show you just to kind of sum up where we've been, what we've been looking at. Go ahead and flip the slide. There we are. Talking about making deposits. Remember, we're still working off of what Jesus said about out of the overflow of the heart. The big lesson here is what you put in is what's going to come out. What you put in is going to determine who's king of your heart. You make evil deposits, you're going to be thinking about things like murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. If King Jesus is just the king of your rules, that doesn't change. You'll be making evil deposits. That is the most common form of Christianity in our nation and in our area. And I don't believe that that's the life that's worthy of our Lord or that pleases him in every way. If we're going to do that, we have to start making deposits of gratitude, forgiveness, faithfulness, and love for others. Does that make sense? Just a little word here about the condition of your heart. Hebrews 3, 12 through 13 commands us to see to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We're supposed to be encouraging each other to make these deposits every day. Why do you, why do you think the, the author of Hebrews says do it every day? I think because we need to do it every day. And I think also I need to be reminded every day to put these things in my heart. See, knowing this doesn't mean that it's going to happen. Knowing this is just gives me the chance to make it happen. I have to choose. And here's the thing. I start making these evil deposits, I'm going to be deceived. I can think I'm a good Christian and be horribly off base. And the result is my heart will get hard. This column over here on the left, that's a hard heart. Allow yourself to make these deposits in your heart and in your thinking. You'll end up with a hard heart. If that doesn't scare you, I would challenge you to go back and get a Bible program or go to Google and search out hard heart and look at what pops up. Pharaoh and a few others. Having a hard heart is a very bad thing. On the other end of that is to have a tender heart. If you want to understand what a tender heart is, look at 1 Peter 3.8. The only way to get a tender heart is to have Jesus in there. To have his love in there. Just to live like a king, you've got to love like the king. To do that, you've got to make these kind of deposits. Because things are going to come along where we're going to need to let that overflow out of our heart. Okay, so how do you get there? How do I make Jesus king in my heart? I'm going to try to wrap this up real quick. The first idea I've got, and I, I don't know that I've got an exhaustive list, but these make sense to me. The first thing I would do is replace your thoughts with his thoughts. Replace your thoughts with his thoughts. It may sound like a yeah, duh, but let's look at it a little closer. Philippians 4.8. 
I used to hate this verse. I'll explain why in a minute. He says there, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. The reason why I didn't like that verse too much is I thought, I can't do that. How do you drive down the road thinking about what's good and pleasant and not run over people? You know? Whenever I've got a neighbor jumping down my throat about the fall leaves, kind of hard to channel what's good and noble and pleasant. Well, I've understood this a little bit differently. How many of you guys have angry conversations in your head? (laughs) Kind of universal, right? You've been given by God this wonderful imagination machine. The problem with your imagination machine is you're just rehearsing what's going to happen whenever the situation presents itself. That can be a positive or that can be a negative. I was dealing with a young woman earlier this week and she had been mistreated in her workplace. It wasn't arguable. She really had been treated badly. And so she's standing at the gate of her heart. She's committed to be a disciple. She's standing at the gate of her heart trying to wrestle back, keep the gates on her anger. She knows that's wrong, so she's trying not to give in. And she's confessing the struggle, trying not to get angry. And so I said, well, I'm working up this lesson for Sunday morning. Can I experiment on you? She said, well, I guess. I said, so before any of this happened, how often do you have arguments with people in your head where you stand up for yourself or defend yourself or tell somebody off? She kind of went, (laughs) all the time. That's what's coming out. That's why you're feeling this way. If Jesus is going to be king of your heart, you've got to get ahead of this. You've got to replace your thoughts with his thoughts because you're rehearsing. What about whenever you indulge a sexual fantasy? You're rehearsing. And a lot of you married people would think I would never fool around on my mate. But, you know, what I think isn't such a big deal. Oh, yes, it is. Because you're making deposits. And whenever the right person comes along, if you've been rehearsing saying yes to immorality, guess what's going to happen? It's going to come out. So go on to the next thing here. Number two, keep God's mercy in full view. Never lose sight of it. If I'm going to put Jesus in my heart and really allow him to be at my core, in my center, so that he's what comes out of me when my guard is down, I'm going to have to keep God's mercy in full view. What do I mean by that? Well, look at Romans 12, 1 and 2. A very familiar passage. Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. That means you looking at God's mercy towards you. Has God shown you mercy? Amazing mercy. Has anybody ever done more wrong to you than you've done to God? Can't happen. We've got to keep really in touch Keep it real with who we really are. In view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Living sacrifices don't get real worked up about their rights. How about you? Do you get worked up about your rights? Holy and pleasing to God, this is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We're back to those deposits. The pattern of this world being conformed to it is allowing myself to think all kinds of crazy thoughts. To daydream. 
about all kinds of crazy things, to make evil deposits in my heart. That's the world. But making those godly deposits, that's being transformed by the renewing of my mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and perfect and pleasing will. I do not like the NIV's rendering of this. I think that word approve is better served to be translated prove. The difference between those two statements is if I'm going to test and approve what God's will is, well, that's about how it affects me. But whenever I live this way, I'm testing what God says and I'm proving it to other people who are watching that he's right. Because we are making some audacious claims, folks. We're claiming that there is a God who spoke all this stuff into existence and that he became one of us to redeem us and buy us back and he still has the power to raise dead lives back to life and to bring purpose and order to people whose lives are just pointless and soaked in hurt. We're saying that we have a different answer to life's problems than the world does. When we don't transform by the renewing of our minds... We're not proving that God is right. Because we live powerless lives, suffering from the same addictions, suffering from the same disappointments and heartaches. You know that the latest studies, latest, uh, what do you call it, surveys, statistics, that's the one, statistics on, on divorce inside the church, I think the church actually has a higher percentage now than the world around us. Why would anybody listen to us about marriage? People who don't listen to God at all. And I'll tell you why it happens. Because there is not a marriage that couldn't be saved if the people involved in the marriage were committed to have Jesus at the core of them to where they were interested in justice and they were absolutely dogged about not depriving the rights of their spouse. If they had at their core an absolute determination to have Jesus' mercy in there and they would willingly surrender some of their rights for their spouse's sake. And if they were, had God's faithfulness in there to where they would always tell the truth and they would do what they said they would do. How do you have that marriage blow up? But what, what does that say about us as a culture? If, if Christianity in America doesn't do any better than the world around that doesn't worship him at all. Well, folks, we can't do a lot about the broad pale of Christianity in America, but we can do something about Greater Alton, can't we? We can do something about your small group. And I think it comes down to, is Jesus going to be at the center of you, or is he just going to be the rules you follow? Are you going to read the Bible looking for his rules, or are you going to read the Bible and looking for God? I want to encourage you to do the other, because I've done the former. I didn't like it real well. Some of you folks have, Kathy Chestnut, where are you at, Kathy? You in here? I'm sitting out on the front porch on Thursday night. It's Halloween. Trick-or-treaters are coming by. And she's talking to me, and she says, she's talking to me about somebody else she's talking to. And she says, you won't believe, Alan. He's, a, he's like a totally different guy from what we knew for you years ago. I'm both happy and sad at the same time. It's like, well, I'm glad you like me now. <laughs> I'd say that was just Kathy, except that I've heard that statement a few times. And, and some people said, you just seem happier. Well, I am. I'm a lot happier. How do you think I learned to be able to tell you about these things? Because I'm walking it too. And I'm telling you, trying to move Jesus to my core and not just get really good with the rules has made life easier. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. It is a yoke, folks. 
They don't put yokes on you as an accessory to go to the movies. They put a yoke on you because that's how you hitch up to a plow. We're supposed to serve the king. But it's a lot easier than doing life the way that I was doing it. Maybe easier than the way you've been doing it. Okay, let God change how you think. Number three, hide God's word in your heart. You've got to hide God's word in your heart. I've got to tell you, if this right here, this time frame on Sunday mornings is the only time that you're interacting with the word of God, you are not hiding God's word in your heart. Statistics have proven this, that by 4 o'clock this afternoon, you will forget 90% of everything that I've said today. I hope the 10% that you choose to remember was the actual smart stuff I said, because there's probably some dumb things I've said too. I hope you retain some smart things, but that's not hiding God's word in your heart. I think it's more about hiding your heart from God. Look at what David said in Psalms 119, verses 9 through 11. He says, how can a young man cleanse his way? How many of you guys want a cleaner way? I do. He says, well, here's the answer. By taking heed according to your word, with my whole heart, there it is again, whole heart, I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Okay, there's no shortcuts here, guys. It's got to be your whole heart, not part of it. And you've got to hide God's word in your heart. That imagination machine, replacing your thoughts with his, that's a part of it. But you can't do that until you know what his thoughts are. Why do you think we're so crazy? I know Tim and Gary and I sound like we've got this one drum and we just keep beating it. Discipleship group, small group, Bible study. Why do you think we're beating that? Well, that's how we got to be the older guys here. Because we've found that there's value in this. Where we talk, we talk about what God says, not what we think. We don't quote each other or other influential pastors. We quote, we quote apostles. We quote Jesus. We're looking for him. How do we do that? Because we've been spending time looking at his word. So how does this work for me? I have those angry thoughts, things happening to me all the time. I was out mowing the lawn the other day trying to mulch up leaves. For no particular reason, sunshiny day, I'm having a good time mowing along, and I get mad. I don't even realize that I'm mad at first. You ever been there? And I'm thinking about something that happened a long time ago. And so I'm having this angry argument in my head. And all of a sudden I realize, wait a second. God would never talk like that. So I have to stop and back up the tape. Okay, let's replay this again. And this time I'm trying to put into it God's justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Those things we read in in Philippians 4. And it's hard work because I have to keep stopping that tape and going back and practicing it again. But eventually what happens is I navigate through that imaginary scenario in my head in a godly way. You know what happens to my emotions? I'm at peace. And I humble out. And I think of myself more accurately. This whole thing about in view of God's mercy, we've got to be real about who we are. One of the things that I have to do is I have to remind myself that I am nobody special. Who am I that I can't be mistreated? Who am I to gripe whenever someone doesn't talk to me with respect or the way I think I deserve? What do I really deserve? See, by hiding God's word in my heart, I get in touch with who he is. And all of a sudden, better things start coming out for me. Again, David said he did it with his whole heart, not with part of his heart. In Acts chapter 13, verse 22, we're told that David was a man after God's own heart. Now, I look a lot like my dad. And people used to say, oh, he takes after his dad. 
uh, Justin was serving coffee out at the Treats from the Trunk, and a guy that used to work for me a, a long time ago walked up and said, well, hello, Alan. <laughs> Which, that's a flatter to me, not so flattering to my son. <laughs> how, do you, how do you get over that? You're coming this way, kid. I, I can't do anything about it. <laughs> so get used to it. It's a jar, but yeah. Anyhow, he takes after me. and his, I thought that that's what David did. He took after God. He just looked like God. I don't believe that's what we're being told there. I think that David was chasing after God. He wanted a heart like God's. He wanted God in his center, and so he chased him. What are you chasing? What are you chasing after? We used to have a study, and I'm wrapping up here. We used to have a study a few years ago where we had three pictures in this study, and it was of a throne. In the first picture... You were sitting on the throne and Jesus was at the foot of it. In the second one, it's kind of this crowded situation where you got Jesus and you trying to share the throne. And in the last one, the right one, Jesus is on the throne and you're sitting at the, at the foot of it. Which picture do you want to be right? Which, which picture do you want to represent you? Is Jesus going to be king of your heart? i got to tell you, man, you're going to have to chase it. You're going to have to actively make departs, uh, make deposits in your heart. But it is so worth it. I'm going to pray, and we're going to pass out some cards. And, uh, well, you've got, well, I, do they have the communication cards today? Did those get printed up? Cool. You got those. <laughs> if there's some need that you want met or something you want prayed about, that's an opportunity for you to do that. And uh, we're going to sing a song, and that will give you a chance to kind of fill those out a little bit. We're also going to pass a tray to pick those up, but that's also a good time for those of you that have chosen to give money to support the ministry that goes on here for you to do that. If you're one of our guests today, or if you're only giving out a sense of obligation or rule, it's not a heart thing, don't feel like you should put any money in there. You know, God's got all the money. He can fund us a number of ways. It's an opportunity, but we want it to come from the right kind of heart, not out of a sense of obligation or debt. So I'm going to, if you would, bow your heads with me. I'm going to pray, and then we'll sing a song and collect those. Heavenly Father, uh, again, thank you for the privilege of coming to know you. Father, I would pray for, for this congregation that we will desire deeply to have you at the core of us individually, that you would feel at home in our hearts, that it would be your home. And Father, that what would come out of us like fruit off of a tree would be your godliness, would be your love, that we would want to treat everybody with justice and faithfulness and mercy. <laughs> uh, well, Father, anyway, that, that's, that's what we want to do. We want to take this past rules, past religion, and into relationship with you. Father, we want you to get every ounce out of us that you created us for. Father, uh, we love you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.